I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East political science podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Jason Brownlee at the University of Texas at Austin, author of a number of recent books, including Democracy Prevention and The Arab Spring, Pathways of Repression and Reform, uh, and uh, currently working on a new project on U.S. interventionism in the Middle East and globally. Uh, Jason, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about this new project. Uh, what, what, what's, the, what's the big idea that you want us to be engaging with? Yeah, well, the working title of the project is Dumb Wars, Why America Intervenes. And I take the title from a speech that Obama gave back in 2002, October 2002, when he was criticizing the buildup to the Iraq War. And he famously said, I'm he was not against all wars. He had supported the war in Afghanistan, for example. But he was against dumb wars where it seemed like existing policies, the containment of Saddam Hussein, the sanctions, etc., were working. And he cautioned against a war of choice uh, with untold costs. And that speech by 2008 looked quite uh, sagacious and really helped him to compete against Hillary Clinton in the primary and helped him to compete against John McCain in the general election, besting candidates who had a lot more foreign policy experience on paper than he did. So I, for me, the, the issue of intervention and dumb wars has been vexing, not only because of Iraq and Afghanistan, but also more generally in U.S. history, going back to the Spanish-American War of 1898. And I've written about this uh, in a few different places, but this book is my attempt to kind of really wrestle with that puzzle in a systematic way. Why is it that the United States, when it has so much power and security and wealth, continues to involve itself in major combat interventions? And since the end of the Cold War, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989, the U.S. has launched a new intervention on average once every three years. And by new intervention here, I'm, I have a pretty high bar. I'm not just talking about drone strikes or special ops. I'm talking about combat interventions where we actually put boots in the air or boots on the ground. And so from Panama in 1989 to the intervention in Syria that Obama began in 2014, we have been uh, regularly involved in these interventions. And I'm trying to get at the logic and the pattern behind them. So what makes a war dumb then in, in, in kind of your estimation in, in terms of how you would think about the American place in the international system and, uh, and what you know, would constitute a, a rational or effective use of military force? I think what makes these dumb sort of ex-ante, before you even get into the long-term costs and, let's say, being stuck in a counterinsurgency quagmire for years and years. The, the reason we could see less costly options up front is because we have a number of examples of the United States working through major human rights concerns or security concerns diplomatically. Iran would be one case. That's a case where the U.S hasn't launched a dumb war, what would be an extremely dumb uh, war. And actually, I, I bring that in in the book to explain not only the 
what political scientists would call the positive cases in the sense of they act, the outcomes that actually happened, but also the negative cases or the dogs that didn't bark, places where you could say from the other end, deterrence worked, that a U.S. intervention was deterred, or the U.S. just didn't have the, the interest to get involved to begin with. We have that in terms of security concerns with U.S. policy toward North Korea and Iran. We have that on human rights issues where the U.S. from Rwanda to Myanmar, and we can name other cases, has chosen not to get involved the way it did in Libya. And, and that's actually a really interesting part of the book is precisely that, that you being able to lay out these cases where the U.S. could have intervened and didn't. Um, and that's something which I think people don't, uh, don't typically do when, when they're studying this. Um, when you look at the ones where we did intervene, um, yeah, the book, it, it brings out a number of patterns. So you think there actually is a clear logic for why we intervene in some places and not in other places. And uh, when you look at this list of, of, you know, potential interventions, what explains why we go in some and not in others? Right. So the explanation that I have, have reached is that the U.S. is post-19 November, uh, post November 1989, is operating in a system where it can't be assured of perpetual dominance and security. It is an international system where there's no global sovereign that's going to tell everyone, okay, you're safe, you don't need to build up your, your arms. And so in that context, the U.S. is interested, even in the absence of uh, a Cold War uh, kind of rival, is interested in continuing to expand its relative wealth, its relative power, and through those, its relative security. That's interesting, right? This, that no matter how powerful you are, you never truly feel secure. You're never going to be able to rest on your laurels and just say, hey, I'm the hegemon. Yeah, exactly. That's where I go with this. And I, I build on work by John Mearsheimer, um, and what some of your political science listeners will be familiar with as offensive realism, but I take it in a different direction than him. I don't, for Mearsheimer, and he writes this in his, his latest book that's out, uh, The Great Delusion, the United States should just kind of enjoy hegemony in the Western Hemisphere and then prevent other regional hegemons from arising in Europe and the Middle East and in East Asia. And I, and, and thus when the U.S. is getting involved in Iraq in 2003, for him it really looks like a, a aberrant behavior which has to be explained by uh, invoking the Israel lobby or some type of liberal ideology in, in American domestic politics. And for me, I don't, I don't see that that way. I think the war in Iraq in 2003 was a logical extension of U.S. policies uh, throughout the 1990s, really going back to August of 1990. So I see less uh, discontinuities uh, between the 19... 91 uh, Iraq War, Desert Storm, and the 2003 Iraq invasion. And in that sense, I try to make what definitely looks like a dumb war and what feels like it as it stretched on you know, for the better part of a decade afterwards intelligible and understand the, in a sense, the, the structural logic mm -hmm. behind it. And what, what about the international system has brought presidents of both parties and presidents who vary from very pragmatic in terms of their administration like George H.W. Bush to more neoconservative and hawkish like George W. Bush's uh, security team. What brought them toward wanting to uh, 
change the regime in Iraq. You, you, have, you have a very a, a nice little uh, pithy little line in there where you basically say that it's it's November of 1989, not 9/11, that right. that changes the international system. Yeah. And uh, so let's, let's walk through that a little bit. I, I think it's pretty yeah. obvious how the end of the Cold War changes the international system and you know unipolarity and and all of that. But walk us through the argument about why 9-11 did not constitute a structural change for you. Why, why is okay. that not such a big inflection yeah. point yeah. for you? Okay, so I'll start with what I do think is the inflection point, and then I'll get to, to 9-11. So, yeah, the the kind of bumper sticker here, which I think uh, others have said, and, and Derek Cholette and James Goldguy um, book comes to mind, is that 11-9 of 1989, that is the beginning of the, the political collapse of the Berlin Wall, and then over subsequent days, the, the literal collapse of it, is more important for global politics and understanding U.S. behavior than 9-11. And that's because the shift from a bipolar system where you had a structural deterrent to major U.S. interventions is much more significant than what was essentially the to date, the pinnacle of non-state terrorism against Americans, um, uh, 9-11. Now, 9-11 certainly is seared in Americans' minds, you know, like of our generation, those who remember 1989 as well as, as, well as uh, 2001, more so than maybe the fall of the Berlin Wall, just because of the, the trauma of it. Um, and of course, it was followed by the Afghanistan war and then the Iraq war. And so it seems like, well, it's got to be 9-11 that's starting all of these interventions. Um, but one thing that I'm able to do in the book and looking at a, a broad set of cases and really trying to look at basically 30 years of post-Cold War history and take a macro historical approach is to say, well, wait a second, let's see which of these cases we should be generalizing from and which ones are outliers. And I do credit 9-11 with the intervention in Afghanistan, the combat intervention in Afghanistan. The normal U.S. behavior toward a country like Afghanistan, which is economically uh, poor and geographically distant from the major nodes of American power overseas, which are basically Berlin and Tokyo, the normal approach is what Clinton was doing, cruise missiles. You don't actually put large numbers of U.S. troops in there. The, the stakes are not sufficient to justify such a commitment. 9-11 got that commitment and ironically drove the U.S. into its longest war uh, in, in history, longer even than the, the Vietnam intervention. Um, but, but beyond that, um, the policy toward Iraq was one that the George W. Bush administration was entertaining as early as January of 2001. And that Clinton himself had signed on to with the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998 and that made regime change in Baghdad formal U.S. policy. And, and then when you look beyond uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, 9-11 doesn't explain Obama's uh, approach to Libya um, or the, the contrast between his approach to Libya and his approach towards Syria and some of those other negative cases that we've mentioned, places like Darfur in Sudan, which both George W. Bush and Obama expressed a lot of consternation over, and they took some diplomatic measures, but they they didn't seriously contemplate making an intervention uh, 
time of, mm-hmm. that they did in those other places. And you make an interesting point about Afghanistan. You say it wasn't actually an intervention in Afghanistan. It could have been anywhere that Al-Qaeda was. Well, I think we, we make a mistake when we think of it as an Afghanistan intervention. It was an anti-Al-Qaeda intervention. If Osama bin Laden and, and crowd had been hanging out in, in Sudan, we might have U.S. troops in Khartoum right now instead of in, um, you know, instead of in Kabul. So I, that's another thing that I think we, we can get if we move from the more sort of country-centered or case-centered or presidential administration-centered um, approaches to something broader. Well, let's go with that for a little bit, because this is something that I've wrestled with, written a few things about, and it's interesting to think through. This is basically an argument about structure versus agency, in a way, as you have this series of presidents who each come in with their set of ideas about foreign policy, and then they seem to be you know, relentlessly pulled back in by structure into behaving in basically the same way. You saw it with with Clinton, you saw it with the first book, with, with the second Bush, you saw it with Obama. Um, how does that work exactly? What, what is it about structure that makes it so difficult for uh, presidents, even presidents with very strong ideas of their own, to to really change U.S. policy? Well, I mean, they're operating in a system, and you know, as we say about history, you you act and you have some agency, but you act in conditions that you've inherited. Um, and, you act in a context. And so I think the variations across individual administrations is useful for explaining some policy differences. Maybe in domestic policy it matters a lot, and certainly in foreign policy we can imagine that you know, a, a hypothetical John McCain administration in would have, could have responded to the Arab Spring differently than the Obama administration. But I think that the those variations uh, pale in comparison to the overall commonalities and parallels uh, mm-hmm. in behavior across administrations. Now, what is bringing about those parallels? There, I think the main one is the structure of the international system, which is drawing um, the United States through any number of um, actors in Washington, D.C., as well as the structure of its economy and uh, a significant amount of its economy devoted to military spending to be engaged actively uh, with these combat interventions rather than pursuing diplomatic alternatives. I mean, I guess there would be a possibility, a sort of alternative approach, which would involve more of like a, so let's say a Norwegian uh, foreign policy where you're more multilateral, more interested in using economic aid before any type of combat intervention. Um, But I think for the most powerful country in the world to embrace such a foreign policy, it would take something systemic at the level level of the international system. And in that respect, while I think that domestic movements for promoting foreign policy change are essential and can be highly influential at particular points, for example, eventually bringing the United States around to join the international consensus against apartheid South Africa in the 1980s, I think for a long-term behavioral change away from interventionism, we would need something that is more global to provide mm-hmm. security for the most powerful actors so that we don't, we have a time horizon in which people, in which 
states and the people running them can see that intervention is no longer necessary. So one of the most interesting kind of negative cases uh, for the book, it seems, would be uh, would, would be Syria and uh, not the ISIS intervention, but the non-direct military intervention against Assad. You mentioned before, you know, if this had happened under a McCain administration, um, the response might have looked very, very different. It's, I mean, from what we know about John McCain, it seems quite likely that he would have had a much more forceful military response. Uh, at least that was his position in the Senate. Um, would that change your? Would that have forced a change in your book if we had ended up uh, right now with a major military operation in in Syria, occupying Damascus, whatever? Would that one single change in administration have led to a fundamentally different analysis, or would it have fit basically with your understanding of kind of U.S. position in uh, in this global structure? Well, to cut to the chase, if he had been willing to go into Syria at the risk of a major war with Russia, that would have disrupted the argument of the book. I consider... So you think McCain that, would, have been, would have been constrained? I think he would have been constrained, and I think actually the I think Putin might have moved in faster to shore up the Assad regime if he had anticipated the U.S. Um, trying to get more involved in Syria. The main thrust of my book, if you're thinking about like what is going to explain the variation for these cases that are economically significant, would be external powers. Like it, basically either the conventional deterrent of the country itself, in the case of Iran, or in weaker countries like Syria, the ability of external powers, external major powers, that is nuclear powers, to backstop the regime and show the United States there's no pathway here toward, to a quick military victory or in a rock style regime change within a few weeks. And so in that respect, I think things could have played out differently if there had been a way for either McCain to basically tell Putin back off and you're gonna to have to give up Tartus and, and just forget about Syria. Um, you could have seen a US regime change intervention in, in Damascus, um, but otherwise, had the basic structural relationship remained mm -hmm. the same, I think the McCain would have been um, deterred. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's impossible to know, but it's an interesting counterfactual given given the logic of the argument. I think the variation that would be more reasonable to expect would be McCain sticking around in Libya, mm. in, in in putting in ground troops, and not having this sort of careful Obama doctrine style approach. Yeah where you do the no-fly zones and you basically, you're less eager than Great Britain and France to get in on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and he, you might have seen a Libya intervention that went much faster initially because of a larger commitment of U.S. military power so that it's over by, by May or June, say, mm -hmm. and it doesn't stretch on until August, October. But then the U.S. troops stick around. Yeah. Let me ask one, one, one last question about how you understand kind of American interests and kind of America's position in, in the international system. You have an interesting way of conceptualizing this with basically Tokyo and Berlin as the key nodes of the U.S. Well, you don't use the word imperium, but kind of, of, of the U.S. power structure in, in, in the international system. If, if you look at the, the network of bases in the Gulf and extending around Turkey and, and the degree of U.S. military involvement in, 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 the, in the Gulf, 
uh, and in the Middle East, uh, certainly since 2001, but arguably since 1990. Why wouldn't you consider that to be one of the key nodes of, of, of this U.S. position in the world? Well, you're absolutely right that if we go back to Kenan and we think about what, or in, in Mearsheimer's approaches as well, what are the major regions? It's not just Western Europe and East Asia, but also the, the Persian Gulf. I look at Germany and Japan as the major nodes of U.S. power because those are where the the plurality of kind of long-term stationing of U.S. forces are. If we had some equivalent presence like in Kuwait or Qatar, I suppose one of those could become a node. But as it is, we have more of a floating um, presence around the region. And one of the things that I'm cautious about is just assigning significance to the Persian Gulf just because of oil. I mean, there's just been great work by Morris Edelman in economics and Tim Mitchell and Bob Vitalis over on the political science side, as well as Roger Stern from Geography, about how people misrepresent the way oil works, and then they reify what are essentially misconceptions about oil to be factual, um, like that the U.S. has to defend the free supply, the free uh, flow of oil, the way Jimmy Carter said in his uh, in the Carter Doctrine in 1980. And so, when it comes to the Persian Gulf, when it comes to states like Kuwait and Iraq, I just look I, I look at their relative proximity to, in this case, it would be Germany, and I find that's pretty useful for explaining it. Also, in the case of Libya, even closer to to Western Europe, and then I just look at their wealth, like just GDP, and I don't have to make special exotic arguments about oil in particular. So I think, you know, Libya mattered for for Europe for reasons that we've seen unfold over subsequent years. Um, and I guess also that's another reason not to get so fixated on the Middle East as some regional moniker, because Middle East lumps together like Morocco and Yemen and uh, UAE and states with very different situations. The concern with Libya was not one about the Persian Gulf or the Strait of Hormuz, obviously, but it was about the, um, the, the potential flow of refugees as well as the wealth of Libya itself. So that's, you know, that's, that's my basic approach. Some others have recommended thinking about, like, well, what if you look at geography based on Beijing and Moscow and Jerusalem instead? And I think that those would be fine, um, you know, approaches. I don't think they would fundamentally shift the, the kind of geopolitical ranking that I come up with mm -hmm. and where the U.S. is drawn to intervene or not. Because basically the sub-Saharan African states will still remain relatively far more distant and remote than the other ones. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Jason Brownlee of the University of Texas uh, with his uh, fascinating book that he's working on uh, called Dumb Wars, Why America Intervenes. Uh, Jason, thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.